Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Violet Podcast. This week we're going to be talking about the coup in Myanmar, including a potted history of a not particularly well-known country in Southeast Asia, the current situation and the lessons that we think we can learn from it. Enjoy! Hi Violet listeners, before we start the podcast, we just wanted to warn you that this week's episode includes a fair amount of discussion about serious war crimes that some listeners may find distressing. Nonetheless, we hope you find it interesting, and as always, we look forward to hearing your comments and questions about the episode. Thanks for listening. So, in November 2020, Myanmar held a free and fair general election, which was won quite convincingly by the National League for Democracy Party, the NLD, and, I guess we should say, lost by the Union Solidarity and Development Party, the USDP. Yeah, so uh, the USDP is the civilian uh, arm or wing of the army, but the army also has very direct influence in Burmese politics. It holds 25% of the seats automatically in both houses of the legislature. In this instance, uh, for, for various reasons, they, they felt like they couldn't let the NLD democratic victory in the elections be recognised uh, argued that there were electoral irregularities and carried out a coup. Um, for those listeners who don't know, what is a coup or coup d'état if you really insist on throwing French where it's not needed? So a, a coup d'état or a blow of state uh, is when a military organisation or, or a small uh, body within the military over, uh, overturns or topples the existing civilian government and takes direct control of the country. So, as always, before we get into the details of, of what's going on and what the implications are, um, it's important to understand how we ended up here. It's important to understand the, the context that all these things are happening in and um, to understand sort of the basics, the fundamentals of Myanmar history. Yeah, so foregoing my history teacher tendencies to go into unnecessary detail, uh, I'll try to give a potted history. Um, so, Burma was a state that existed before colonisation. It's not... Um, something like Nigeria, which was fused together as a colonial project. So there were Burmese empires in Southeast Asia before Britain showed up. Uh, in the Anglo-Burmese Wars, uh, these Burmese entities were conquered and incorporated first into British India and then broken off as a separate colony. Uh, it is worth noting at this point that Myanmar is quite, I guess you could say, an unhappy coalition of, of identities and different ethnic groups like the Karen and the Shan, uh, who were brought by force into the Burmese Empire by the uh, majority or the ethnic majority of Burma. So in this case, this is a, a union of ethnic groups which was uh, by military force and before the arrival of European colonialism. So I guess at that point, uh, it's important to point out the difference between Burma and Burmese and why we use Myanmar. Myanmar refers to the country that currently exists, um, whereas not all people in Myanmar would consider themselves Burmese. And in fact, a lot of them might be quite offended if you thought they were Burmese. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing in the English language because the official denonym or what you call someone from Myanmar is still Burmese. Um, and Myanmar and Burma actually come from the same root word, so it doesn't really solve much. But I guess Myanmar is an, is an effort to make it seem like more of a multi-ethnic and inclusive state. Uh, I guess the distinction between calling the UK the UK and calling it England, because even though England is the dominant policy and the, the majority ethnic group within the UK, you would refer to it as the UK so as to give equal acknowledgement of representation to 
all the constituent parts. Um, so during World War II, the British Empire in Asia came under assault uh, from the Japanese Empire, and Japan did invade and occupy large parts of Burma uh, for most of World War II. At the end of World War II, uh, various Burmese political figures led by Aung San, the current Aung San Suu Kyi's father, uh, negotiated the Panglong Agreement with Britain in order to secure independence. Uh, this was signed in 1947. It did guarantee the independence of Burma. Uh, a, key, a key part of the agreement was that it agreed a high degree of autonomy for the various non-Burma ethnic groups like the Karen uh, and the Shan, and uh, effectively said that although they would be part of the Burmese state, they could have a high degree of autonomy and self-rule within their respective regions of the country. Somewhat unfortunately, after the signing of the Panglong Agreement, uh, only a few months later, Aung San was assassinated. Uh, the culprits have never been identified, but they rocked up at the building he was in, in an army jeep in military fatigues, and assassinated him and his uh, his presumptive cabinet. So he was actually killed before Burma became independent in 1948. Uh, from 1948 to the, to the 80s, there's a long history of instabilities and coups and military governments uh, from the 1960s to 80s, uh, Burma was under the rule of uh, what was called the Burma Socialist Programme Party, but was really a front for the military. So the head of the party uh, was a leading general. In 1988, there was a mass uprising uh, against the against the military dictatorship called the 8888 uprising because it was on the 8th of August 1988. Uh, the military put this down brutally. Many protesters were shot and killed. Estimates range from about 350 to 10,000, uh, depending on who you ask. A key figure in these protests, these pro-democracy protests, was Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, the daughter of Aung San, the founding father of Burma. Uh, she campaigned very extensively for democracy um, and for her efforts. She spent a long period of time either in prison or under house arrest by the military regime. Uh, she won the Nobel Prize or was awarded the Nobel Prize, uh, but was unable to receive it in person, I believe, because she was under house arrest at the time. So for, for most of the, the 90s and the 2000s then, uh, Burma remained a military dictatorship after crushing pro-democratic opposition in the 8888 uh, uprising. In 2010, the first elections in about 20 years were held. Uh, and the party that won those elections was the USDP, the Union Solidarity and Development Party. They're, they were effectively the civilian wing, still are the civilian wing of the military. Aung San didn't get to participate in these elections because she was still under house arrest. But a week after the elections, she, she was released. And from that point on, Burma or Myanmar started on a, a slow and uneven path to what we might call democracy. In 2015, the first truly free elections in, in Myanmar were held. But in that election, the, the NLD, the National League for Democracy, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, gained a overwhelming majority in both houses of Burma's parliament. Uh, despite that, the army still had a great degree of influence in, in politics. The second largest party, the USDP, uh, is still a military-backed party. Um, and by the terms of the agreements negotiated for democratization of the country, the army still retains 25% of seats in both houses of parliament, which it simply gets to a point without any democratic oversight. It's probably also worth noting that the army has uh, gone out of its way to prevent or to try and um, reduce the probability that the NLD will take uh, full executive power in Myanmar. One example of this is the ridiculous law 
that they passed before the 2015 election, uh, stipulating that nobody could become president of Myanmar uh, if they had foreign relatives, which was quite clearly aimed at Aung San Suu Kyi, given that both of her children have British citizenship. Um, fortunately for her, uh, her party still won, and she invented the position of state councillor, which is... Um, effectively president. Effectively president in all but name, absolutely. So the lesson, I guess, that we need to take away from this is that when we talk about a, a military coup in Myanmar, we're not talking about a democratic country where the army has stepped in and um, taken away civil liberties in a liberal country. This is a country that has been under brutal military rule for absolutely decades, for living memory, um, in which the, the military has slowly begun to ease up on its uh, control of the country. This has resulted in an election result that they are not happy with, and so they are now retracting those liberties that they were slowly beginning to um, give out. So I guess a neat way to phrase it is that this coup is the norm and, and not the exception. Military rule is the norm and not the exception. It's the past five years, really, of democracy, which have been the outlier for Burma's uh, political history. So I guess the first thing to say is that a coup is never a good thing. The people of Myanmar have uh, voted okay, they haven't been able to vote on everything, they don't get to choose their government entirely, and the army still maintains a lot of powers. But the results of this election were overwhelmingly in favour of the NLD uh, and show that the population of Myanmar is really in favour of not just a democratic process, but also of having Aung San Suu Kyi as their leader, okay, she's not technically president, uh, and of having the NLD as their leading party and the army not on the basis of any sort of uh, popular support or legitimacy purely by use of force uh, I don't know if listeners have seen this but there was a, a video going around the internet last week of uh, someone doing I think it was a yoga instructional video mm-hmm. in the capital of Myanmar which is uh, Naypyidaw which is a very interesting city and actually a whole other topic to discuss on its own right um, but and behind her the tanks were rolling past up the up the road to go and arrest the leaders of the NLD and overthrow the government. Um, this was not a change of government by will. This was not a change of government that in any way reflected what people uh, in the country wanted. This was a change of government that um, was purely implemented through the use of force. And if we have any sort of attachment to democracy as a system, we need to condemn use of force to change governments because that doesn't result in the government that reflects the beliefs and values and wills of the people within the country however um, complex a patchwork of identities and values and cultures that that country might be um, that simply reflects who's got the biggest stick who's got the most tanks and that's I mean that's no fair means to run a country but On top of that, in this particular case, we also need to talk about the Burmese army specifically, because whilst uh, a coup d'etat is not something that we should be celebrating anywhere in the world, the Burmese army in particular has a pretty horrendous rap sheet when it comes to unnecessary violence, human uh, human rights abuses, and genocide. Well, we mentioned before the panel agreement that 
created the modern state of Burma uh, and how it was an attempt to appease all these different ethnic groups in the country uh, and offer a great degree of autonomy. The army at the Tatmadaw hasn't really followed through with any of those promises for most of the past few decades. Uh, it's been waging brutal civil conflicts against those groups in various peripheral parts of the country. Uh, it's been accused quite credibly by major human rights organizations of rape, use of child soldiers, uh, massacres, use of civilians as slave labor. Um, it's in no way what you would call an institution that would exercise political power responsibly. And it's not by any means their only crime, but out of those uh, ethnic groups that have been repressed, oppressed, murdered by the Burmese army, I think there's one in particular that we need to talk about, which is the Rohingya minority in southwestern Myanmar. Uh, the Rohingya minority are pretty much all concentrated within one state, Rohingya state, uh, where they do not constitute a majority. And in that state, there have been many attempts by the Rohingya to to establish uh, separate or autonomous institutions. So there have been uh, acts of, of political violence by, uh, by various groups, which you could fairly deem terrorist groups, uh, founded by uh, Rohingya militants. Um, what the Tatmadaw has used this as an excuse to do, though, is to conduct a very widespread and indiscriminate crackdown on the entire population of Rohingya uh, and persecute them all as if they were collectively guilty for the acts of these quite limited terrorist or separatist groups. Um, so there's a great deal of, of satellite evidence, even though the Burmese army has denied this, of entire villages uh, and civilian areas being burned to the ground. Uh, and many more accounts from refugee camps in Bangladesh of rapes, murders, uh, the killing of very young children or babies, uh, Rohingya people being thrown into fires, and many other horrific events. Now, obviously, any sort of violence of that kind anywhere in the world against anyone is completely reprehensible. But I also think that we've got um, lessons we can learn about the treatment of the Rohingya by the Burmese army um, that reflect on things that are going on in this country and in lots of other countries around the world. Um, firstly, the reason why the Rohingya are such a persecuted um, minority within Myanmar, and this is in no way uh, defending that or claiming that that's acceptable, I'm just trying to explain you know, what the argument is, is that they immigrated to um, Myanmar during British colonisation. Um, the Burmese government actually doesn't accept the use of the word Rohingya. They simply refer to them as Bengalis under the belief that they're all immigrants from Bangladesh. Um, and while there was a large amount of immigration from what we now call Bangladesh to what we now call Myanmar um, during the British colonial rule of the two, there were Rohingya settlements, there were Rohingya people living in what's now Rakhine State long before that. So that proves that, first of all, the immigrant argument is not true, that um, the Rohingya have lived in Rakhine, in what's now part of Myanmar, longer than Myanmar has actually existed. But secondly, it reflects on our own treatment of uh, immigrants and the rhetoric that's used around immigration in other countries. Because even if the Rohingya were immigrants to, to um, Myanmar, that is in no way an excuse to treat them in anything like the way that the Burmese army has treated them. Second lesson I think we can pull from this, and something that we haven't mentioned yet, is that the Rohingya, while they are a separate ethnic group to, to the Burmese, um, they're also majority Muslim 
whereas the Burmese ethnic group and a lot of the other ethnic groups in Myanmar are majority Buddhist. And fundamentally, the argument that's being used by the Tatmadaw is that because some Rohingya are members of terrorist separatist groups, that means all Rohingya are collectively culpable. Uh, and we do see that argument reflected in, in Western Europe, in, in the Western world, uh, with reference to, to groups like Muslims, for example, the idea that because some Muslims have uh, committed acts of terrorism, all of them are therefore culpable and suspect. Um, and I think it is something that's, that's worth being aware of, that the attitude, this could never happen here, is somewhat of a naive one. Uh, when you un- unleash that kind of rhetoric, what we see happening in Burma with the Rohingya is the is really the logical end result of that un- unrestrained rhetoric building up steam over time. So on the face of it, this seems like a situation in which we have a clear villain and a clear hero, right? We have um, an election that's won by someone who has spent their life campaigning for democracy, who has endured imprisonment, um, who has won the Nobel Prize for their efforts, who has legitimately won an election, and they've been arrested and had that taken away from them by um, an armed group with a long, comprehensive history of murder, torture, genocide, and crimes against humanity. But that's not the case. And in fact, that's that's not the case in any complicated um, political event that we can divide things neatly into villains and heroes. Because as awful as the Burmese military has been, Aung San Suu Kyi doesn't exactly have a clean rap sheet herself. So Aung San Suu Kyi was, was held up by many Western politicians as you know, the paradigm of democracy and liberalism uh, and, and a saint who was rescuing Burma from the military. Um, and it is true, she has been instrumental in the spread of democracy in, in Myanmar. Um, but her party, the NLD, and um, she herself has been very culpable in terms of supporting the military's actions against the Rohingya and other ethnic groups. Uh, she's been not just silent in terms of ignoring it, but very vocal in actively defending what the military has done. Uh, so over the past few years, there's been a court case ongoing in the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, brought by the Gambia against Myanmar for their treatment of the Rohingya um, on the basis that it violates the International Genocide Convention. And at that, uh, at that trial, she represented Myanmar. She defended the actions of the military. She argued that this was uh, only the military acting against terrorists or insurgents. Uh, she downplayed the violence against civilians, argued this was only minor collateral damage and that there wasn't a systematic attempt to, to murder or expel hundreds of thousands of Rohingya. Um, she actually refused to use the word Rohingya at all uh, and to recognise them as a distinct ethnic group. And I have seen a narrative that um, potentially part of her reasoning behind this and defending the, the generals is because she is intimately aware that um, a lot of political power in Myanmar still rests in the hands of the military and that to some extent she needs to keep the military happy in order to keep her position. But I also think we can be pretty clear about the fact that A, that is not a legitimate reason to defend genocide simply because there does not exist a legitimate reason to defend genocide. And secondly, she has a history of standing up to the Tatmadaw. Um, That's what she won her Nobel Prize for, um, for the cause of democracy in Myanmar. She was willing to risk her life and endure imprisonment, uh, but she's not willing to do so to um, 
remonstrate uh, a genocidal regime. So it does appear that a possible point of view here is that the Tatmazor is a horrific institution conducting ethnic persecutions, massacres, genocides, but the NLD is no better. Aung San Suu Kyi doesn't care about the minorities in Myanmar. She only cares about the Bama ethnic group. She only cares about um, retaining power for her party. Uh, and there is then a school of thought which would argue we shouldn't have a dog in the fight. They're both as bad as each other. It doesn't matter whether Myanmar is a flawed democracy with Aung San Suu Kyi as the state councillor or whether it's a military regime uh, under the Tatmadaw. Yes, and clearly this is a difficult situation. And I think the, the most important thing to do here is not to heroise anybody. But that doesn't mean that uh, just because we're in a difficult situation with no perfect options, we shouldn't have opinions on it and we shouldn't um, feel strongly about what's going on. In part because in many places around the world where... Um, people's rights are severely restricted, where people live with an atrocious lack of basic resources. Um, we face, looking at the, the political events of those places, we face horrific decisions and there are no, um, there are no golden bullets, there are no um, sort of panaceas that are going to solve all of those problems and allow those people to live in a beautiful utopian world. So looking at this particular situation, um, I think it's important that we have our allegiance not to people or to organisations, but to ideas and principles. And really, the options here are between um, a democratic state that um, supports a genocide and an autocratic state that supports a genocide. And it's in absolutely no way supporting the treatment of the Rohingya minority to say that this coup is an affront to democracy, it is a step backwards, it is going to restrict the rights of um, not just the ethnic minorities, the Karen, the Shan uh, and the Rohingya in Burma, but the Bamar as well, the ethnic majority. Um, it's going to bring back a repressive regime with a history of murder and torture and it's going to undermine the political system that Myanmar needs if it's ever going to develop, if human rights are ever going to take root, and if any of these problems are ever going to eventually move towards some sort of solution. I do also think, building on that, that any, any civil political system which has a large armed faction within it and conducting operations within the state uh, is one that is very fragile and probably on the verge of failure. Um, because the idea of civil politics or, or liberal democracy relies on the notion that you solve arguments by the ballot or voting rather than the bullet or the use of force. Uh, and if there is an entity within the state which regularly uses force uh, to achieve its objectives, it undermines that whole concept. Right. At the heart of um, believing in democracy as a, as a political system is the idea that we have these incredibly difficult decisions that we need to come to and I'm clearly not talking about genocide anymore we, we have a lot of difficult decisions to, to come to about uh, the laws and rules and norms of our society and lots of people feel very strongly about competing views and that the only way in which we can come to any sort of um, sensible solution, any sort of compromise um, any sort of system 
that has a hope of making everyone happy or meeting everyone's needs or whatever, however you want to think about it is through dialogue, is through um, discussing these things, understanding the differences between different people and different groups of people and different ideas and giving all of those different voices uh, a place in the decision-making system, even if some of them are ultimately going to be disappointed. And the moment you arm one of those groups, not even the moment you arm them, but the moment you allow um, violence and force to enter into that equation and for the debate to be won, in inverted commas, by whoever's the best armed, whoever's the best military tactician, you are abandoning any hope that what might come out of this is a reasoned solution. So to return to what we think is the central point of all of this, um, if we look at Aung San Suu Kyi as a political figure, what should we think of her? She's someone who was a democratic icon in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, uh, and someone who has now pretty openly endorsed uh, a genocidal uh, military regime, even though it did eventually turn on her. I think the lesson that we take away from this is that we shouldn't sanctify or heroize political leaders. Political leaders aren't saints. They're, they're flawed human beings like the rest of us. Uh, and sometimes they may enact good policies, and sometimes they may enact horrific ones. I think the, the central lesson to take away from this is that we should support and condemn ideas rather than support or condemn people. And it's ideas that we should be loyal to rather than flawed human beings. And there are a lot of examples of this um, with controversial people in history, but also politically relevant now, who are controversial because they have done things, they have introduced policies, they have uh, said things that have had really positive consequences for a lot of people, and they've also done things that have had really negative consequences for a lot of people. And I think the reason why such figures become so uh, polarising, become a source of argument, but also are confusing for people, is because they are trying to approach what to think of that person on a balance sheet, <laughs> on balancing up the good things and the bad things they did. But also, in thinking about policies, a lot of the time events will happen and people's opinions about them default to what their opinions of the main actors are, rather than thinking about the situation itself. And that actually, all of that can be solved by, as you said, condemning or supporting the idea rather than the person. And when somebody uh, enacts a policy that is positive and is going to improve people's lives, it's not a contradiction to wholeheartedly support that policy and want to see that policy succeed, even if that person has other reasons to believe they're reprehensible. And equally, the opposite is true, that when someone who we have generally favourable view of, who has generally done things that we believe to be good in their sort of previous political career, turns around with an atrocious policy or an atrocious idea or says something horrible, it's not a contradiction to condemn that action. And we should be focusing on those actions, not those people. Yeah, so I guess wrapping things up this week, um, that's our, our potted history of Myanmar and our assessment of the current situation. Uh, of course, they were not claiming to be uh, omniscient founts of knowledge. So if you have any disagreements, any comments, uh, anything you would like to add or any uh, proposals for future podcast topics, please get in touch. 
and let us know. You can contact us at, at underscore the violet underscore on Twitter, or you can email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com. Uh, and also visit our website, theviolet.net. Thanks very much and see you next week.